5, the scripture says this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I should have said, if you're not looking at the scripture, this is Jesus talking. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Father, this whole scene is amazing. God, thank you that when you sent Jesus into the world, you didn't send him into the world to try to do something, to attempt to get something done. Lord, you sent Christ into the world to do something, and he was going to accomplish it. And he did, in fact, accomplish it. God, thank you that when he drank from that cup, your wrath, which was aimed at us rightly, was poured out on him in our place. God, thank you that in his death, the full penalty, the full punishment for our sin was paid. And we have no further debt. And God, thank you that we will not be lost. We cannot be lost. Those of us who are in Christ, those whom he came to purchase, we cannot be lost. 
And God, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you give us um, grateful hearts. I pray you give us uh, amazement at your mercy to us in Jesus. Um, Lord, there's no one who's good like you. Lord, we do love you and we praise you uh, that you loved us first and gave us new hearts that love you in return. And um, Lord, I pray that we will continue to grow in that. Bless uh, Chris um, as he preaches this morning. Uh, God, I thank you for his faithfulness in the way that he handles your word. Um, Thank you for the gift it is to get to listen to him preach your word. Um, And God, I thank you for the the kind of man uh, that Chris Brody is. Um, Lord, we love you and we uh, pray that you will uh, have us uh, listen attentively this morning, uh, that we will give ear to your word and um, and that by your spirit, you will make us more like Christ as a result. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is a blessing to hear people stand in this spot and say nice things about you. It's also humbling, um, especially in preparation for a sermon addressing the passage that we addressed this morning in Second Peter. I'm sorry, in First Peter chapter two. This is uh, the the fourth in a series um, looking at Peter's first letter and if God wills down the road looking even at Peter's second letter with an eye towards Peter's own personal experience as recorded in the Gospels and how that may impact or connect what it is that he has to say in writing to the, uh, the elect exiles, the elect sojourners, his prescribed audience. Um, after this morning, We will break for a couple of months, as is our three-way rotation, and uh, pick this particular course of study back up in December, and um, I'm thankful for that opportunity to break, as are Chad and Shane, when the time comes for them to be able to break after a month of preaching. And honestly, you probably are as well, because it's good to hear from different people when none of us are professionals, so... Appreciate your patience along the way. If you would, please stand to honor the word of God as we read together from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, the good and, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May we be changed by it today. Amen. This passage of scripture has two distinct sections. In verses 13 through 17, we will look at a clarification of a command. And in verses 18 through 25, we will see a lesson about unjust suffering. Section one, clarification of a command. Now, before I go any further, I feel like I have to stop and address this because I believe this is now three weeks in a row where I'm throwing this word command around. And some of you may, may at some point be a little weary of this, as though Peter is literally just standing there issuing command after command after command to his audience. It, per, it is perhaps a little um, extreme, maybe. That's not the best word. It might be a bit much to use the word command repeatedly here. But what you need to understand is um, when Peter writes... Um, much like we see in the way that he lives, he gets excited about stuff, okay? And the, the way that he chooses to write in the Greek, he uses the imperative tense a lot. So we have verbs here that are imperative verbs, and what's being communicated is there is urgency to this, and you need to do this. For lack of a better word, command, but not command in the sense that he is the ultimate authority and he is dictating to you what must be done. Command in the sense that there is urgency, there is importance to this. So look at it, consider it carefully, submit to it, and walk in obedience. It is valuable, it is important for the exile, exiled sojourners, the elect exiles. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is the content of the first command. The idea here to be subject to, this is the idea that we previously talked about and linked to the idea of, linked to the concept of obedience. 
This is the idea of willingly placing yourself under the authority of somebody else. And he defines who the somebody else is in this passage. Be subject to every human institution. Literally, that phrase is an interesting one. It means the whole of the creation of mankind. The whole of the creation of mankind. And the emphasis point here is on what it is that human beings have created. Okay, a set order of authority as created by man. Peter says, submit yourself to that. And he has a reason for it. And the reason is because of the Lord. He says that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution because of the Lord. And what he's indicating here is that there's a purpose, there's a reason that's bigger than whatever man intended when man created this system, when man created this authority structure. There's a purpose of God that stands that's bigger. And it's not because of man that we submit ourselves to it. It's because of God's purpose, which he's going to get into. I promise we'll get there. It's because of God's purpose that's bigger And that is why we submit ourselves to that which man has created. Now, there's context to this. This concept of the creation of mankind, that which man has created, this stands in opposite to, in contrast to, that which God has created, the established order of God, the creation of God. And it is specifically in this passage, because you could go a lot of places with this. What is it that mankind has created? Well, there's a lot of things that mankind has created. But Peter is speaking very specifically in the context of this passage to governing authorities. And we know this because of the examples that he uses. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and the idea for emperor there is really the one who is the sovereign, Okay, ultimately, hierarchical structures move their way up, and there's one at the top. And that's who he's referring to on the level of mankind, not as we head into the heavens, into the level of God. But on the level of man, there is one who is the sovereign, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, the one who rightly has the superior rank, and it's correct for us to place ourselves underneath, or governors. And the idea here is an official. Now we have states, the way that we've broken things up in this country, and each state is governed by someone who has a capital G governor name, title attached to their role and their position. This does not specify on that level of detail. This idea of governor is one who governs on behalf of, one who acts as an official of the sovereign. And this person has a twofold job. According to verse 14, their job is to punish, which literally reads, I'm sorry, it says punish those who do evil. Literally in the Greek, this is an interesting phrase because it means sent for just vengeance on evildoers. So the whole reason that this person was needed, one half of the reason why this person was needed and was sent, this official was for justice against those who do evil. But that's not it. There's also a second part to that, and that is praise for the purpose of praising those who do good. 
Now, this idea of good that we've seen here, we've seen this before. Peter's used this concept throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 to this point. The idea of good here is that which is intrinsically good. It's an important concept because we're going to see it four times in this short passage. This concept of good comes up four times in this passage. And it's consistently this idea of what is intrinsically good. You know, Jesus at one point is, someone asks him a question and they throw the word good in there. And Jesus catches that concept of good and turns the question back and says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. And he is correct to say that. God alone is the fountainhead, the source of that which is intrinsically good. What that means, though, then, is for those who are in relationship with him, for those that are in connection with him, life-giving connection, we can both know and understand this concept of good and act in it. We are not the source of good. We do not create good but we can do that which is good by the grace of God through the relationship that we have in Christ by the abiding work of the Spirit to change us on the inside and make us into a new person. We can act according to what is intrinsically good. And it's interesting to point out that the officials, those who act according to the sovereign's will, half of their job is to commend those who do good. Now I'm going to pause here for a second and I'm going to take us to a different passage of scripture and that passage is Romans 13. If you're familiar with Romans 13, you might be like, well, that sounds very familiar to what Peter's writing here in the beginning of this passage. And it is. There are some things that are very similar and there are some things that are a little bit different. And we will take a look at both of those. So let's jump over to Romans chapter 13, and we're specifically going to look at verses 1 through 4. I will read them for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here we have contrasting perspectives on this issue of human authority, human governance from both Peter and Paul. Let's start with this. What is different in the two passages? What's different in their perspectives? Well, Paul in this passage in Romans says that human authorities come from God, that they've been instituted by God, and that resisting these human authorities is the equivalent of resisting God, making us subject to his judgment. Whereas Peter, in our passage, makes it very clear that these human positions of authority are, in fact, human creations, 
goes out of his way to use the description to show that in contrast to that which has been ordered and created by God. Now, it's interesting to point out here that on the surface, this may look like there's an, a disagreement, there is a disagreement, but these two ideas are not in conflict. In fact, both conditions can be 100% true. Human positions of authority can be created by mankind, but also bear the authority and the purpose of God. And in fact, when you ask the second question, not the what is different question, but the what is similar question, the very purpose of that human authority comes into perspective. The purpose of that human authority, Peter and Paul both agree, is that praise, approval, and commendation should be extended towards those who do what is good. But justice, vengeance, and even wrath should be extended for those who do evil. The apostles then agree. Human authorities are worthy of our obedience, worthy of us placing ourselves underneath their authority. Not because they're infallible, not because they're 100% faithful, and not even because they're consistently obedient to their purpose. But they're worthy of our obedience and our submission because they have a God-given purpose. And obedience to and placing ourselves under their authority is in fact, by nature, doing good, regardless of whether it is recognized or not. Now look, Peter is not a fool, okay? He knows who the emperor is. He knows what persecution is. And he knows that the government is not going to commend them for doing good. But the call to persist in doing good, this is God's will. This is what it is that God wants from his people. Look at verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When verse 15 says, this is the will of God, it's referring backwards to what was said before, the command itself. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. This is the will of God, that you should walk in submission and obedience to those who have been given a purpose by God in their role as human authority. Now it has an effect, this obedience in God's will. The effect that Peter points out is this, verse 15. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Literally, the idea is to muzzle the speech of those who are described by two things. Number one, they are without knowledge. They are ignorant. And again, this is consistent with Peter's use of ignorance. This is the idea of relationship-based understanding. They are without knowledge because they are without a relationship with God. They lack the necessary understanding that only comes when one is in Christ. 
when one has been redeemed, when one has been granted spiritual life and understanding. And number two, they are without reason and perspective. If spiritually you don't attend to the truth, your reason and your perspective are always going to be scrambled. There's no way around that. Peter says, you are not these people. You, elect sojourners, my audience, you are in a relationship. You do have knowledge. You are able to discern reason. You do have the correct perspective. In fact, he goes on to say, in light of all that, you are free. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of Christ. This idea of free means that they are not under restraint. They are unshackled. They are unrestrained. They have been liberated. And Peter's, Peter's warning to them, his strong language is, do not use that liberation to veil or cover evil. Now, I will tell you this, in the process of preparing to teach, in the process of preparing to stand up here and say things, spiritual truths, share and communicate them, there are times when God grabs something and he gets your attention with it. And this idea right here, do not use your status as free, liberated, as a cover for evil, If you ponder that deeply and you begin to take a look at the way that you justify what you say and what you do, you may end up in a position similar to I was this week where this sat heavy upon me. And I pray that God does that sort of work in you as well because it is right to identify where we, even in the smallest of ways, Use freedom that has been obtained in Christ. Liberation, the payment of sin, being freed from the penalty of sin and found freedom to exercise that which moves us back towards sin itself. Brothers and sisters, be careful. In warning them to not use their freedom to walk back towards sin, He advocates that their perspective should be this. Live as servants of God. This is interesting because he's literally just said you've been freed. You truly have freedom. Now I'm going to call you to live in a way that the world would not recognize as freedom. In fact, the world would look at it and say this is the opposite of freedom. Be a servant. The Greek word for servant here is emphasizing the concept of this is somebody who does not have ownership rights of their own. They are, in fact, a bond slave. And the irony is that when you come across the usage of this word in the New Testament, it's communicated with a degree of dignity that socially doesn't fit its place. It's as though the writers of the New Testament are honoring the concept of those who are willing spiritually to take freedom 
And instead of running with it into the wild, to turn and live under the authority of Christ, to submit to the authority of Christ, to walk in obedience to that which Christ has commanded. The idea is this, yield your rights even to yourself and live in obedience and submission to Christ. Now he concludes this opening section, this clarification section, with a four-part imperative found in verse 17. Four very quick statements. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's take a look at each one of these quickly. The idea of honor here is the idea of assigning value, recognizing and assigning value to something or someone. And when he says what's translated as everyone, um, this has more the idea of all parts. It has less to do with making sure that you go and honor and submit to and respect every single person but it's the concept of wholeness across the board covering all of the necessary parts. Make sure that there is honor. So don't look at certain kinds of people that fit in certain kinds of categories in your mind and keep them aside as not worthy of your honor. What Peter's saying here is that across the board, all people, all walks of life, all are worthy of your honor. He uses the idea of love, love the brotherhood. And again, consistent as we've seen before, this is the agape concept of love. This is the willing self-sacrifice, which fits perfectly in the discussion because if we're talking about willing submission to be as one who has no rights of ownership, uh, willing obedience to walk in serving other people, the agape concept of love fits hand in hand with that. This idea that he uses the brotherhood, um, this word is only found in Peter's writing. It's kind of his word to describe the church. And what he's doing is he's carrying the concept of fellowship and he's undergirding it with the phileo concept of love, that we are to be brothers and sisters to one another. We are family and we ought to love and care for one another as family. And then like he did in chapter one, he amps that up a level by adding agape to it as well. It's an emphasis on fellowship. Now I'm going to stop here for a second because these first two imperatives are structured differently than the next two. These first two imperatives here are a call to ongoing action. They're a call to draw a line in the sand, act a certain way with results that will continue into the future. And that's different than three and four that we're about to look at here. Three and four have more of an immediacy to them. These are a call to take care of this now. Get this right now. And what does he say with these last two? Fear God. Again, the same concept of fear that we have seen him use previously the idea of both respect and terror, but also the idea of honoring the emperor. Again, assigning appropriate value through the eyes of God to the one who stands as the sovereign.
Beginning in verse 18, we look at and consider what is a lesson about unjust suffering. Now, this begins with a declaration, and the declaration is this found in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This word for servants is a bit different than the one that Peter just used when he was calling the freed people of God to submit to God. This word for servant is emphasizing the idea of those who have been entrusted to run the house. Literally has the house servant concept built into it. This servant would be somebody who is valued highly, treated with a level of respect that not every servant would, and keeps a relationship that's closer to the family than others might imagine. And in that context, Peter says this, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. So these servants, these house servants, should place themselves in obedience under the authority of those that are over them, regardless of how that authority is exercised to them. When he says in all respect, again, this use of the word all is the concept of wholeness and in every part. And this idea for respect is the same Greek word that we saw in the previous verse where it says to fear God. So in the same way that you fear God, Peter is saying, bring that same level and intentionality of respect to those who are above you. If they are good, again, intrinsically doing what is good, and gentle, the idea there is true or fair, but also if they're unjust, and the idea here for unjust is the idea of being crooked or twisted. Now, what's interesting about this lesson is when he gets to the why. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There are a number of different ways that different translations uh, render that phrase at the beginning of verse 19. Sometimes it says like reasonable. But this idea literally is the Greek word for grace. What Peter's saying here literally is that it is grace. Yes, literally the favor of the Lord. It is grace to endure, to bear up under, and to continue through sorrow while suffering unjustly for doing good. Now, this is a theme that's going to take us through the rest of the letter, okay? And I'll bring you back to it and remind you of it when we move through those sections. But it's an important and powerful theme. But Peter is very clear about it. It is, in fact, according to Peter, grace. It is a realization of the favor of God when we bear up under sorrow and suffer unjustly for doing good. You know, many times when people talk about suffering for doing good, their why behind it includes things like, well, it's good for you, or it builds character, 
Okay? It's not what Peter says here. It's not about being good for you. It's not about being building character. You are following literally in the example of Christ. And that idea of example that he uses here. Sorry, I know it's in here. (laughs) Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That idea of example that's used right there is literally the idea of a writing that's intended to be copied. So the writing is Christ, intended to be copied in you. The example is suffering unjustly for doing good. And it is grace for you to be a written copy of Christ in this way. You are a partaker in his life. You are walking in his very footsteps when it comes to suffering unjustly. Now that being said, it's important to understand exactly what it means to suffer unjustly. And in order to give insight to that, Peter does. What he does is he captures three allusions from Isaiah 53. And they're found in the following passages beginning in verse 22. As you know, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy that talks about the one who will come and who will suffer. And numerous writers in the New Testament are abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's 53 suffering servant, the one who will suffer on behalf of man, the one whose death will purchase salvation and freedom. In verse 22, Peter captures the concept from Isaiah 53 with the words, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He goes on to offer some commentary here. Peter explains that when Jesus was verbally assaulted, we use the word reviled in the scripture, he did not return verbal insult. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. In fact, his response was, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he says that Jesus continued handing himself over and trusting himself to the one who judges justly. That word there, judges justly, is the idea of judging righteously. And we know when we come across righteously that we're referring to one being and one being only, and that is Christ, God in Christ. So when it says that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, there's irony here. Because on the physical level, he's entrusting himself to human authorities that got it completely wrong. Every single one of those men that questioned Jesus in that time leading up to his death got it completely wrong. And he submitted himself, he entrusted himself, he handed himself over to them. On a human level, they were as unjust as you could possibly be. They got it completely wrong. But on a spiritual level, it's completely right because he's handing himself over to the Father who is going to judge justly in righteousness because on a spiritual level, and here we jump into Peter's second allusion from Isaiah 53, found in verse 24, he bore our sins. I know I cut that off awkwardly. 
Jesus entrusted himself to human beings, the epitome of unjust. They got it wrong in every possible way. But at the same time, spiritually, he's entrusting himself to the Father, who is justly pouring out condemnation and wrath upon him because, as Isaiah 53 identifies, he is bearing our sins. And in bearing our sins, he is also bearing our wrath. He took sin upon himself, which means that death is just judgment upon Christ. And he did it so that we might die to sin, Peter says. He uses the phraseology of having been removed from sin. And he did it so that we might live, and we might live to righteousness. The idea for live there is not the beating heart and breath idea, it's the connection to the source idea. Christ died so that we might be connected to him in his resurrection, that we might have life and we might live and walk in righteousness. And finally, illusion number three that Peter pulls in this lesson about unjust suffering is in verse 24. By his wounds you have been healed. This is substitution. Substitution to the uttermost. The ultimate substitution. So in essence, what, de- what defines suffering unjustly? Well, according to Peter, Christ is the model for suffering unjustly. Because he committed no sin, deceit was not found in his mouth. But in doing so, he bore our sins, and by his wounds we have been healed. Suffering unjustly means spiritual reality instead of physical distraction. Suffering unjustly means righteousness instead of retaliation. Suffering unjustly means contentment instead of complaining. So back to the beginning. It's not really a surprise that Peter would be carrying a sword as he and Jesus and the disciples go to Jerusalem. Jesus had told them that, they, that he would be there handed over to the authorities. And when those authorities came for him, it's no surprise that Peter would wield the sword in order to defend Jesus. But look at Jesus' response. He tells Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus entrusted himself to the one that judges in righteousness. He committed no sin. Instead, he bore our sin. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so, having learned this lesson of unjust suffering... Peter appropriately concludes with the testimony of his own experience. We were wandering like sheep, but have now been returned to the shepherd, the keeper, the overseer of our souls. Thank you, Lord, for this grace. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our submission and our fear. You are the one who judges justly. We're reminded today that Christ bore our sin without complaining. He drank the cup of your wrath. And by his wounds we are healed. 
Thank you for the grace of suffering unjustly. May we be faithful in doing good, regardless of whether it is recognized or commended. May we take delight, may we delight in partaking in the life of Christ more than we enjoy safety and quiet. Thank you for liberation, freedom from sin. Cause us to be disgusted by the prospect of using that freedom to cover over evil. Shepherd our souls, we ask, through Christ. Amen.